0: Go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, I thank you that you sent your Son to rescue us once again. I just want our hearts to be filled with gratitude today. And I pray that you would just help us right now to experience the joy that the disciples first experienced when they saw that their king was not dead. They were shocked. They should have expected it. He told them again and again. But they just had it so ingrained in them that death was final, that this life is all there is. And I thank you that you came back from beyond the grave and proved them wrong. And, oh, Father, I thank you that you sent jesus for us so please send your spirit now in a special way just filling us with listening ears and open hearts to your word in Jesus' name amen this morning we're going to be in the passage of scripture that carol read for us earlier john chapter 19 or john chapter 20 i mean john chapter 20 um and we'll be looking at the first 20 uh, verses. So John 19. And I'll, I'll read it for us in a few minutes. But first I just want to um, talk about where we're going today a little bit. Um, I, I recently watched a movie about a journalist named Lee Strobel. Have you guys ever heard of Lee Strobel? Some of you. Um, he came to faith in Jesus after a long period of examining the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the reason Lee went after the resurrection and tried to examine the resurrection, according to the movie anyway, was because one of his co-workers, who was a believer, told him that Christianity was like a house of cards built upon the solid rock of the resurrection of Jesus. And so he said, basically, Lee, if you want to disprove Christianity, then you've got to aim all your arguments against the resurrection. If the resurrection is false then the whole of Christianity comes tumbling down. But if it's true, then all of Christianity, all of Jesus' claims are verified. So ultimately, in the movie, and in Lee's story, it's a true story, Lee tries very hard to disprove, disprove the resurrection, and he ends up becoming a Christian in the end, because he can't. Again, this is a, Lee was a real person and now, Lee Strobel, he's devoted his entire life to writing book after book. I forget how many books he's written. But basically, all of them, um, his first one, I think, was Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Um, a Case for Christ, maybe, was his first. I forget. A Case for Christ. Yeah. And then Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And, oh, Josh McDowell. Okay. Yeah. I'm getting my wires crossed here. But basically, um, Lee Strobel has written several books arguing for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and um, helping skeptics grapple with evidence that Jesus rose bodily from the grave. Now, if you're interested in seeing Lee, Lee Strobel's book, I think we have it in the office, if that's like something you want to read or give to somebody, um, see me afterward, or just go poke your head in there and find it. Uh, it might be buried, but it's in there. Uh, the, the reason I bring up Lee's story is because you need to know and we all need to be reminded how essential the resurrection is to the Christian faith. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says If Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, so like if we look at Jesus as like some person that just helps us improve our life, a moral teacher that just makes us better. Paul says, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, according to Paul, then Christians are totally wasting their time following him or his teachings. He was either, as C.S. Lewis always said, a lord, a liar, or a lunatic. If he's not the lord, then he's either a crazy liar or just crazy. We're wasting our time. Now, at this point, as I was preparing the sermon, I felt like I could take our, our Easter sermon in one of two directions. On one hand, we could look at some of Lee Strobel's arguments for the resurrection and all the objections to it and present the best possible case that we could that Jesus actually rose from the dead. But that's not what I want to do today. Um, if you're ever wondering about the historical reliability of the claims of the resurrection. There are many good, good books from little pamphlets up to 1,200-page volumes proving the resurrection of Jesus. The evidence is overwhelming. Um, And so that's not the direction that I chose to take this morning. If you want to go that direction, see me after. I'll give you some books many as you want, as long as you'll read them. But this morning, what I'd like to do is read the story of the resurrection found in John's Gospel, chapter 20. And as I read it, I'll make a few comments as we go along. And then I want to make three observations, three main observations about the resurrection from the text. And then finally, I want to close our time together with eight reasons that we as Christians, those of us who believe in Jesus, should rejoice in the resurrection. And my aim here is not to convince your head that the resurrection is true, if you have any doubts. Instead, my prayer is that God would use my tongue this morning to be a vehicle through which the beauty of the resurrection hits our hearts and captures our hearts afresh with awe at who Jesus is and the reality that he's alive. So let's look at John 20 together. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Mary was one of Jesus' followers. Can you imagine going to visit your loved one in the cemetery who's just passed away, and the gravestone is gone and there's a gaping hole in the ground? It's a little bit about what it would be like. Where is he? I was going to put flowers on the grave. I and mean, a there's, there's a hole. Mary was, so, so verse 2, she went running to Simon Peter and the other disciples. You might go running to the police <laughs> or call your family. Where's dad? The one Jesus loved, that's John, the Gospel's writer. Gospel, the gospel writer refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Mary said to him, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Notice Mary isn't expecting a resurrection. Even though Jesus talked about the resurrection, back in John chapter 2, for example, um, resurrection wasn't the disciples' plan for Jesus' life. Back near the end of John, uh, uh, because basically they didn't, they didn't think that Jesus was going to die. He was going to be the Messiah, the King. That's why in the garden when he's getting arrested, Peter drew his sword. He's like, it's go time, Right? No. Put your sword away. That wasn't Peter's plan for Jesus' life. They didn't expect a resurrection because they didn't expect a death. So they run to the tomb. And the other disciples started for the tomb with Peter. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciples who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So again, we'll stop for a second. Do you see some of these random details? Like which disciple was faster in a race um, linen folded up in one place. It's like headcloth separate. John, John, the disciple who beat Peter to the tomb, um, he's writing as, as an eyewitness. And this is exactly the kind of details that we would think we would see in an eyewitness account. Not a carefully crafted, made up, after the fact story, it's just random details. I beat Peter, but Peter then rushed right in, the head cloth was separate. Then verse ten, the disciples went back to where they were staying Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept she bent over to look into the tomb, and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? I love that. The angels and all of heaven must be rejoicing right now. The heavens are ringing with praises to the resurrected king. And here you have Mary weeping. And the angels are like, girl, why are you crying? The king's alive. This is a day for celebration, right? And Mary replies, they have taken my Lord away and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Same question. Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. In other words, don't keep clinging to me. I haven't ascended to heaven yet. I'm still here. I'm not just going to disappear the moment you turn back around. Don't need to cling on to me. I haven't gone to the Father yet. But go instead, tell my brothers, tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So, the great ascension of the risen Christ, where he ascends the clouds to his heavenly throne at the right hand of the Father, just as Psalm 110 said he would, just as Daniel 7 prophesied that he would. This ascension, the Son of Man riding the clouds to the heavenly throne, that's not coming for 40 days yet. But it is coming. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. She told them, and she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, that's a Sunday evening, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Into their fear, he speaks peace. And then, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side—the scars there—and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. They were overjoyed when they saw Jesus. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, what I'd like to do next is point out the three main things about the resurrection. That I, there's many things about the resurrection you could see from these verses, but there's three main things that I want us. To see. Here's the first one. First, Jesus' resurrection starts God's new creation. For all of you who were here Friday night, you might remember that we sang a song called Is He Worthy by Andrew Peterson. The song goes like this it asks a series of questions and gives some answers. It says, Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. And then the second verse says, Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. It's probably my favorite song. I get a new favorite song about every year. I love this song because I resonate with it. Do you feel that this world, for all its beauty, is broken? Do you feel something deep inside of you aching, wishing the world was different, wishing people would change Wishing you could change things about yourself or about your past. Just go back and redo parts of your life. You find yourself wishing that death didn't always come and rip our lives away and kill those we love. Christians believe that the reason so much feels wrong about the world is because it is wrong. The world is a broken world. A world groaning under curse. A curse that we believe came upon creation because of Adam and Eve who broke God's word of life and rebelled against him in the garden so years, so many years before, right at the beginning. And because of their sin, we believe that death has come into the world. But the whole of the Bible sings a beautiful song about how there is a new creation coming. The Bible paints sin in all its ugliness. As you read through the Old Testament, especially, sometimes you're like, is that even, I can't believe that it's in the Bible, that they would record such darkness. And yes, the Bible does not paint a rosy picture of creation, and yet it paints a beautiful picture for us of new creation. One day, Jesus will return from his heavenly throne, bringing heaven with him to earth, and he will make all things new. Heaven and earth will be one, creation will be restored, and the tragedy of the garden will be reversed. Evil will be permanently removed from the world and from our hearts, and our resurrected bodies, they will not desire sin anymore. This will happen one day. And here's what I want you to see from the text about the new creation that's coming to fix the brokenness. This new creation, it's already begun. Yes, it's still coming in its fullness, but it was decisively set in motion when the stone rolled away from the tomb and Jesus burst forth in brilliant light. The first Adam, back in the Garden of Eden, he died and he stayed dead. But Jesus is a new and better Adam, a last Adam. And Jesus, he dies and then rises and leaves death behind forever. And the resurrection of Jesus also happens in a garden. By Adam the first disobedience, he brought death into creation in a garden. But the perfectly perfectly obedient Jesus, the last Adam, he's raised to life, and he becomes the source of life also in a garden. This story is rich with God-ordained, God-designed symbolism. Mary, in our story, even mistakes Jesus for who? The gardener. Who was the first gardener in the Bible? Adam. Adam. Yes, in a sense, Jesus is the gardener. Mary speaks better than she knows, right? Jesus is the last Adam. He's the gardener of a new creation that's coming. A gardener that doesn't introduce death into the garden, but life. But there's another piece of symbolism at work here. In Genesis, the story of God's initial creation, it takes place in a divine work week. Six six days of work Sunday to Friday, and one day of Sabbath rest, Saturday. And so the whole of Israel's calendar is actually patterned after this God's work week. In the, in the Jewish calendar, the Sabbath day of rest would begin at sundown on Friday night and end on sundown, at sundown on Saturday. And the day of rest was the day that the, the Jewish nation was to take a break from their weekly work routines and from the struggles to provide for their own needs by working the soil. And instead, they were to rest and trust that the Lord would provide for them as they spent time in worship of him and in enjoyment of his creation. That's why the Jewish leaders were hurrying to take Jesus down on the cross before dark on Friday. They didn't want to be caught doing the hard work of murdering the Son of God on the day of God's rest. <clears throat> and now in our passage, we see Jesus, back in John 19, he had been laboring all Friday, bearing the cross Bearing our sins, and finally crying out in a mighty voice at the end of the day, It is finished! And he committed his hands, into, his spirit into his Father's hands, and he rested all night and all day the next day. While the Jews rested, the Son of God, the Lord of the Sabbath, he rested in a tomb. But on the dawn of the third day, on Sunday the rest ended God's rest was over on Sunday the first day of the week Jesus rose again with the rising of the sun and he kicked off his new creation plan that's why Sunday forever after is called the Lord's day you can look see that in the book of revelation chapter 1 verse 10 the first day of the week. It's the start of a new week. A new creation week. It's Genesis 1 all over again. Jesus is a new beginning. That's why all the gospels start off with the, be- the beginning of the gospel about Jesus. The beginning He is the beginning of a new creation. He is the first fruits among all who will one day be raised from the dead. And now let's look at John 20, verse 15. There we read the first words spoken by the risen king of new creation. Why are you crying? That brings us to the second main thing I want you to see this morning. Jesus' resurrection puts an end to tears. I cry pretty easy. I always have. I, I hate to see people hurt. Um, I I hate death, and I hate suffering, and I hate evil. When I read the news, sometimes we we can get numb to tragedy that we hear of constantly, and I don't want that to happen. I want to feel. I want to weep over the brokenness. And yet, we don't... Grieve, as Christians, as those who have no hope. Jesus' resurrection, it gives the hope of indestructible life to a world groaning under the curse of death. Jesus' resurrection, it puts an end to Mary's tears. And one day, it will put an end to all tears everywhere. The gospel writer John he talks about this, actually, in Revelation chapter 21. Where, but he pulls his language there in Revelation 21 about Jesus getting rid of tears in the new creation. He pulls it from Isaiah chapter 25. So I just want to read from Isaiah. Everything the New Testament writers said, they pull from the Old Testament. Jesus, John pulls this from Isaiah. And he says, Isaiah 25, verse 6. He says, on this mountain of the Lord of hosts, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts, on this mountain being the place where God dwells in the new creation, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. What is this covering? What is this veil? He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So take heart. Jesus has overcome the grave, and he is the Lord of Isaiah 25, who says these words are trustworthy and true in Revelation 21. His salvation has come. We get a picture of this in John chapter 20, where we see the original garden scene of Genesis 3 all over again. You've got a man and a woman in a garden, Jesus and Mary. And the man is not dead, and the woman doesn't need to cry anymore. Genesis 3 is reversed no need to read any weirdness into Jesus' relationship with Mary. It's just a picture here. And it's beautiful. Which brings us to the third thing we see about the resurrection from this passage. The resurrection of Jesus brings indestructible joy. Did you notice what happened in John 20, verse 20, when Jesus showed himself to the disciples? The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Jesus had actually predicted their joy earlier in the gospel of John, before he went to the cross, actually. He told them, back in John 16, you could turn there if you want, uh, John 16, verses 19 to 21, not 22, Jesus says this to the disciples. In a little while you will see me no more, and then, after a little while, you will see me. I'm going to go in the grave and you won't see me and then you will see me. Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. I love that. You will rejoice And nobody can take it away. Why? Because Jesus ain't going back in the tomb. Ever. He is alive for always. So the resurrection, it brings indestructible joy. It is a bedrock of hope in the midst of burning tears. No matter what happens to us in this life. No matter what storms we go through. The resurrected Jesus is an anchor for our souls that will never pull loose. So what I'd like to do next is talk about eight reasons why the resurrection should bring us joy, indestructible joy. Eight reasons. First, the resurrection guarantees that the perfect new creation is coming. We already talked a little bit about this, but Because of the resurrection and ascension, there is now a son of Adam, one of us who is reigning as king on the throne of the universe at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And Jesus, this last Adam, he is coming back to walk this earth again with the whole kingdom of heaven in tow. And on that day, Jesus will bring to fulfillment what the first Adam should have done. Jesus will permanently destroy the devil. He won't listen to him like Adam the first. He will end death forever. And he will rule the world with righteousness and with justice from the time he comes. Forever. With no end. One day, no matter how messed up and screwed up the world continues to be, He will make all things new. Nobody can take that away from us. It is an unshakable hope. No matter how much we are shaken. Our king's throne is in heaven. And nothing can tip that throne over. He is the king. And he will return. Second. The resurrection guarantees our justification. In Romans chapter 4, verse 25, Paul says that Jesus was raised for our justification. Do you ever go through a day feeling the constant pressure to justify yourself, to defend yourself, to explain your actions to others and your thoughts and motives so that they would think better of you and not worse of you? Even if you're right. Of course, you always think we always think we're right, right? But have you ever felt that pressure? I've got I've to justify myself. Have you ever gotten sick, though, of that pressure, of the constant pressure to uphold your righteous status in the sight of others and of God? Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can stop trying to justify ourselves. And we can experience the justification of God Himself through Jesus Christ. Here's what I mean. It shouldn't come as a surprise to you, but you're not perfect. And neither am I. We're more flawed than we will ever know. And until we realize this, there's no hope for us, spiritually speaking. We can never be justified in the eyes of God unless we realize we can't justify ourselves. We need a justification, a righteousness, a declaration, you're not guilty, that comes from outside of us. We're not good people in and of ourselves. We need a Savior who declares us right in God's sight, apart from what we do. And Jesus does this on the cross. He comes and he dies Bearing our sin and he represents everyone who trusts him and he gives us a justified status that we didn't earn. If you trust Jesus, then Jesus is for you both as a sacrifice and as a representative before God. He represents you. He covers your sin and when God looks at you, he sees Christ. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All this is through faith, not by trying harder. But what does the resurrection have to do with this? Well, how do we know that Jesus' righteousness is worth anything, or was even real? He was murdered like a criminal in shame, hanging on the cross, crying out, God, why have you forsaken me? You're gonna trust that guy? You're gonna trust his righteousness? Isn't this judgment from God? God raised him. That was Jesus' justification. He was vindicated by the Spirit, Paul says. He vindicated is the same word for justified, actually. He was justified by the Spirit. Jesus' justification is the resurrection. When Jesus is raised from the dead, God says, though it might have looked like he was a sinner, he wasn't. I raised him, proving to the world that they were wrong about my son. He's perfect. He's the only perfect one. Jesus' resurrection is his justification and therefore secures our justification. If you ever wonder, when you're feeling guilty... Is my forgiveness really real? Remember the resurrection. It is as real as Jesus' empty tomb. Jesus paid for your sins. You don't have to pay for them. Jesus gives you a righteousness. You don't have to run the rat race trying to be perfect in the sight of people. You can say, I'm a sinner with a great Savior. Do you know him? His name is Jesus. Third, the resurrection breaks the hold of the fear of death from me. Brian preached on this this morning at the sunrise service. He did an awesome job. Uh, We all are born with this innate fear of death. And unless Jesus returns in the next 100 years, all of you sitting here today will be dead, will die. You and I, we are are going to die. Let that sink in. But we don't need to be afraid of death if we know Jesus. Because of the resurrection, Jesus tore the bars of death's prison away. Because the tomb stands open, I can be certain that mine one day will open. Jesus defeated death for me and for you. If you trust him. As the apostle Paul says, now as believers, if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. If you die, you belong to Jesus. If you're living, you belong to Jesus. Nothing can take that away from you. the resurrection guarantees it. Fourth, because of the resurrection, I have an advocate before the Father. Right now, there is a man, a human being like us, who stands in heaven with his arms spread wide, showing the scars he earned in paying for my sin. And he is praying for me, interceding for me, and for millions like me, and for you, who have repented of sin and asked him for forgiveness. Jesus is always there. And so I don't need to feel like God is distant or far away or unconcerned about me or what I'm going through. His son, Jesus, is always pleading my cause before the Father in heaven. My risen King, he pleads for me. And he prays for me. I don't have to wonder about what my heavenly father thinks of all the things that I have done wrong. Or may do wrong someday. I already know what he thinks. I've seen the cross. That's what he thinks about your sin. That's what it deserved. Death. But Jesus paid it. He took it on the cross for you and for me. The one on the throne at the right hand of the Father is the one who has died and brought me near. As the song before the throne of God above that we sometimes sing says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because of the resurrection, when we look at the Father and wonder, what must he think of me? We don't have to wonder because the Son is at his right hand and he has shown us the Father. He has shown us that God is love and he brings mercy to all who turn to him. Fifth, because of the resurrection, we have the Holy Spirit of Jesus always with us. Because Jesus rose and ascended, he was able to pour out his Spirit from heaven into this earthly tent called his church. The Holy Spirit of the risen and reigning king of the universe, he lives in us. We are his temple. And so, when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 28, as he ascends into heaven on the clouds, he says, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He sent his spirit to be with us, to comfort us, to help us, to keep us, to guide us, and to change us every day, to live more and love more like him. The comfort of the Spirit of Jesus is a precious thing. And it's sweetest in times of suffering and fear to know in the dark, at night, As I lay down to rest and I'm scared about something, to know that I'm not alone, that Jesus is with me, that He hears me, that I can talk to Him, to feel the warmth of His comforting voice saying, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's nothing like it. And if you don't know what that's like, I want that for you so bad. Ask the Lord. To give you the joy of the spirit. Turn to him. Open his words. He's given them to us. And cry out. He will meet you. He is not far. He longs to be known. He's always with us. And when we can't find words to pray. Because we're just so broken. Prayer is just exhausting. Exhausting. We just don't even know what to say. Romans 8, Paul says that the Spirit prays for us. When you're groaning, as long as your groan is Godward, it's the Spirit who's just telling God how you feel when you just don't even know what to say or how to express it. This is precious to us who know the Lord. Sixth, because the tomb was empty, my faith is grounded in historical fact. Christ was raised. The tomb was really empty. And the best explanation ever given is that He really rose. Hundreds of people really saw the risen Christ with their own eyes. Christianity is not a leap of blind faith. Hear me. Christianity is not a leap in the dark. It's not a wager where we're like, well... If it's true, then, um, you know, at least I won't have wasted my, I'll, I'll just pretend like it's true um, because the other alternative, you know, is, is I, I don't want to go to hell. So let's just, you know, try it and, may, you know, hedge our bets, I guess is the word I'm looking for. No, we don't hedge our bets with Christianity. Well, I'll, I'll just worship Jesus just in case he's real. No. It is true. Jesus, the son of David, rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. The tomb is empty. The throne is not. Seventh, because of the resurrection of Jesus, I can be certain that God the Father, he keeps his word. Thousands of years ago, he made a promise to Eve. That one day, one of her seed would come and crush the rebellion started by Satan. He swore it to Abraham that one of his seeds would be, one of his descendants would be a blessing to all nations. He promised it to David. That David would have a son who would sit on the throne forever. And his promises have come true He did send Jesus to pay for sin and to rise again. And so if he kept his word over the course of thousands of years, I know he will keep his word to me. And I too will rise one day, if only I trust him. Eighth, because of the resurrection, I know that the worst things that happen to me are for my good. When Jesus was butchered on the cross, it seemed that hell had won, that the devil had triumphed. It seemed like defeat was only a... But, but, but what seemed like defeat, it looked like he was a loser, the world's biggest loser. You claimed to be the son of God and now you're naked and bleeding on a cross, shredded and gasping, barely able to breathe. You're a loser to the world. But as he was dying, he was defeating death itself. He was taking our curse so that we don't have to die, be separate from God forever. Jesus was winning even as it looked like he was losing. What seemed like defeat was a prelude to the decisive defeat of Satan and death and hell. And because of the resurrection, we can be certain that Jesus did win. That his battle with death, he came out on top. And I can be certain that my own sufferings, the things that look like defeat to me, are being used by God to conform me to the likeness of Jesus in his suffering and death. So that I too, the lower I get, the more we hurt, the more you hurt, the more things that happen to you, the more you will experience the sweetness of the resurrection one day and of the hope and power that Jesus experienced, of the power that Jesus experienced when he was raised from the dead. We could go talking on and on about the joys of the resurrections, of the resurrection. Think about this. In moments of deepest joy, have you ever experienced kind of a painful ache, like an ache that says there's got to be more to life than this? It's because there is. It's called resurrection life. It happened to Jesus, and it will happen to all who trust him. So your greatest joys can be amplified. They don't have to have this ache that goes on empty, that, that leaves you empty at the end of them. No, your greatest joys are springboards to worship And put your hope in an eternal joy that will never end. Have you ever wondered, what's beyond the grave? What exactly is beyond the grave? Because of the resurrection, we know. Jesus is beyond the grave. Have you ever wondered, with all the religious claims out there, which one is right? The resurrection is God saying, Jesus is right. He's the only one. Listen to him. He's the way. He's the truth. And he's the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through Him. Do you know Him? Do you really know Him? I pray you do. His resurrection proves that He is the King and that He is worthy of our everything. He is is the source of indestructible joy. And he won it for us <laughs> through his cross and his resurrection. And I want that for you. If you, if you um, don't know the joy of the resurrection of Jesus right now, and you're just like, that, it just sounds foreign to me. I'm going to pray right now. And I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to pray for all of us. That even if we do know it, or if we have tasted it, that we would taste it again today afresh. Especially if we're going through something that feels like hell. Because that's what the resurrection is for. You better believe the cross felt like hell to Jesus. And hell loved it. But he knew resurrection was coming. I promise you, that resurrection is coming for each one of you. You trust in Jesus. So let's pray. Oh risen Christ, I thank you for the the joy that no fire extinguisher could put out. The joy that you are alive. And I pray that you, if there is anyone here that does not know that joy, You know their hearts. Lord, I pray that you would just awaken it in them. And for those who have tasted it, but maybe right now it's lost some of its sweetness, I know I experience varying levels of sweetness as I think of your resurrection. I just pray that it would be sweet to us again, that we would be in awe. Of the resurrection. And that we would, we would see you in the eye of our mind. Seated on the throne. Ruling and reigning until the day that you return. And I pray that you would just stir us up with greater love. For you. For who you are. And for what you've done. Lord Jesus, you've said you're coming soon. And we know that with you, a day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years are as a day. We'd love you to come soon, Lord. Please come quickly. Bring an end to suffering. And bring about new creation, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.